Well, you all know what hallelujah means, right? Hallelujah means praise Yah, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. When we say hallelujah, we're saying praise the Lord. All right, well, let's uh, bow together for the message. Lord God, we just pray and come before you and thank you for this opportunity to be in your word, to uh, hear you uh, through your word and to uh, be taught and instructed, Lord, that we might become more and more like your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you that you use your word to conform us to the image of your son. And I pray that we would be receptive, that we would receive it as it is, the very word of God, and allow you to do your work by your spirit in us through it. Lord, we ask you to bless this time in your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been going through uh, the book of Colossians, and uh, we have come to the pinnacle uh, truth concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and how his death, burial, and resurrection applies to us. Uh, we've seen that uh, he died for our sins, uh, that we would be presented holy and blameless before him. And we've seen uh, that we have this tremendous truth that has been hidden and now revealed to us that those within the church, the body of Christ, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Tremendous reality. And as we look at that, and we looked at it last week, I thought, uh, why don't we take a look at some passages that relate to uh, this reality of our future glorification. Uh, we have the very person of Christ by his spirit in us, assuring us of our future glory. And we have in his word the truth concerning that future glory. And it is so that we would not become discouraged, that we would not become depressed, but that we would stand firm in the context of hope, of hope. Would you turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to take a look at how we can do better and better in hope. Our hope does okay sometimes. We, we're hoping it's strong, but then it wavers or whatever it might be. We need to excel in our hope. We need to do better and better in that so that we are not shaken and moved by the difficulties of this life. Turn with me again your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 13 to 18. Now I want to share some of the uh, context first before we get to it. But the Apostle Paul is writing a young church less than one year old in the faith. Quite amazing thought. Uh, he's teaching them all this doctrine. He's even reminding them of what they should know one year into the faith. And that, uh, points, for, that points for us that we should be knowing these things also. Some of us have been believers for years and years and years, and we need to know these things. We need to know these things right away, that we would walk in the context of this truth. And so he has uh, learned uh, uh, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love uh, for the saints and the hope that they have. And he has been, for a moment, orphaned from them. He wanted to be near them, but he was driven out in a sense. He was orphaned from them. And then he learned from Timothy their spiritual condition, and he was so thankful, so thankful. And so after sharing his thankfulness for their salvation in response to the word of God, uh, and then sharing uh, his concerns about their faith, where they were at, Satan might have tempted them. After sharing that, uh, we came to chapter 4, in which Paul shifts gears and begins 
to exhort these Thessalonians in their walk with Jesus Christ. First of all, he talks about their salvation and his concern for them, and now he gets to their walk. And so with that, indeed, he begins with the practical issues of their walk with Christ and our walk with Christ, uh, that they should be, and they were, walking in a manner that pleases God. And he wanted them to remember his previous instructions so that they would excel still more. And the first area that he talked about was sanctification, the context of sexual purity. And then he addressed the issue of excelling still more in bounding, superabounding in the context of love of the brethren. And then from there, I believe he moves to this area of hope, how they can excel more in their hope, not be discouraged, not be depressed, not be uh, concerned in a way that's unneeded uh, because of an ignorance to the word of God. And so at that point, we find ourselves how we can actually gain a greater and greater genuine hope in the context of what God has revealed. Let me share and read the passage, 13 through 18, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as the rest who do not have, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Wow, what an encouraging passage. What a tremendous passage. And I think we know these truths in a sense. We, we, we understand them, uh, but we don't really apply them to our hearts at times. And so we need to see this. We need to not be ignorant concerning this. And so notice, first of all, the Apostle Paul shares that we should not be ignorant to these eternal realities concerning those in Christ. Again, verse uh, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, he says here. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you might grieve, may not grieve like the rest who have no hope. The reality is, the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, we don't want you to be uninformed. Now, these Thessalonians actually understood, and if you were with us when we studied First Thessalonians, they understood so clearly, so clearly that Christ was coming. They understood he was coming for them, and they focused on that. Remember what we see back in chapter 1. Look back in chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of, report about us what kind of reception we have with you, how and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. What a tremendous, uh, uh, salvation. He says here, and to wait, for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, 
who delivers us from the wrath to come. They turned to God and they knew Jesus was coming to deliver them from the wrath to come. You see, if you hear the gospel, you know there is wrath coming. You know that God's wrath is coming upon sin and sinners. And Jesus is the only way to escape that wrath. And so they understood that he saves them and delivers them from that wrath when they're saved, but also he's coming to personally deliver them from that wrath to come. And they understood that within the first three weeks of their salvation. Now, it had only been 20 years since Jesus Christ had died and rose from the dead. And the early church believed this truth, which we're going to see today, that Christ's return was imminent. Imminent doesn't tell us the time. It just tells us it's going to happen quickly. It's coming. It's going to happen. Uh, We see that. And so here we have this truth. And as we're going to see from this, and as we see from our passage, actually in chapter three, verse twelve, and actually, actually, actually in chapter four, verse twelve, but actually uh, we see it there Uh, in Second Thessalonians chapter three. Also, you don't need to look there, but chapter three, four, verse twelve, not three, four, verse twelve, and. 2 Thessalonians 3, some of these Thessalonians had become preoccupied with Christ's coming. So much so that they basically quit their jobs. He's coming. Why do I need to work? Let's just sit on our roofs and wait for him, right? And guess what? Oh, I'm, I'm not working. I don't have any money. I'm getting hungry. I need a sandwich. Can you give me something to eat? They were becoming a burden on the body of Christ. And so they were preoccupied in that context. So Paul had to exhort them to love one another. We see that back in chapter 4, verse 12, as I mentioned, but also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that they were unloving, they were a burden because they were not working. They had basically done what many Christians do at times. They take one area of doctrine and supersede it over everything else rather than seeing things rightly in their context. So then, with that in mind, it's apparent that they understood Christ was coming, but something had happened. Since they got saved about a year, some of their loved ones who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ had passed away. And they were thinking, what happens to them? They missed his coming. They're not going to be delivered from the wrath to come. They were grieved. They were concerned. We're waiting for Jesus to come. He's coming any time, and he hasn't come yet. What happens to my to my father and my mother who passed away? They're very concerned. And so then the Apostle Paul has to address uh, their ignorance, which produced a worldly hopelessness. And by the way, when we are ignorant of biblical truth, it leads to worldly hopelessness, by the way. God gives us his truth, and when we are ignorant, whether willingly, voluntarily, or if we just don't believe it, practically speaking, we're going to have this depression, discouragement, and hopelessness. Yes, we are grieved over things. Yes, this is a tough life, but we can have joy, and we are to have joy. But so many Christians are so depressed about what's going on or whatever it might be in their lives or this world. It shouldn't be that way. Now, one area that you can understand maybe they might be discouraged about is the love was dying. But here, the Apostle Paul is going to say, hey, we are not those who grieve like those who have no hope. We should have a different viewpoint, even on this very issue of death. And so he's going to share with them the truth. Notice what he says. He says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren. 
Now, he just starts off with a conjunction there, right? Now, unfortunately, some translations, including the NIV, do not translate this conjunction. But here, this conjunction translated for us, but uh, is a transitional contrast and a connection to what was just spoken of. He had just told them that they were to excel in their love for one another so that they would behave appropriately towards outsiders and be in no need. You see, if you're not working, you're a burden on the body of Christ and you're also a, a bad example to those who, who, do, who don't know Christ. And so here, they needed to behave appropriately. And so now he says, but in contrast... And I believe he connects the seriousness of their behavior as their witness to outsiders with the seriousness of thinking wrongly concerning the coming of Christ and being hopeless in the midst of the world when you should have be full of hope, okay? I think that's what, how this connects here. So he says, but we do not want you or literally desire you to be uninformed, brethren. The term brethren here is very important. Because it's speaking of those who are in Christ, those who have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we were separate from God. We were separate from him. And when we believed in him, we believed the gospel, we were placed into his family. We become children of God. We become children of God, and thus we become brethren, brothers and sisters of one another in a new spiritual family. That's even above our physical families, right? Tremendous reality. And so this is for believers. So if you're not a believer, don't take any comfort in this passage at all because it doesn't apply to you. It applies to believers. And I say then repent and believe and take great comfort. So he says, brethren, we do not desire or want you to be uninformed. The term in Greek, agnaeo. We get our word, uh, you know, that speaks of being um, ignorant. Ignorant. We don't want you not to know. We don't want you to fail to understand. We don't want you to be ignorant. Remember, these believers were only a year old in the faith, and Paul is saying, you need to know this. You need to know this right away. You need to know this. You need to not be ignorant. So what is it he desires them not to be ignorant about specifically? Verse 13, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about or concerning those who are asleep. Now, if you stop, there you go, well, wait a second, that's kind of silly. Ah, well, they're concerned about those who are sleeping? <laughs> well, they're sleeping too much or too little. Oh, no, what are they concerned about? Well, no, that's not what this passage is going to say, as we're going to see in a minute. You see, this term, asleep, is, is a euphemism for actually death, as we will say. It's a figure of speech. You know, when you think of the term asleep in its basic form, you know, it's a lack of activity from the body, right? You know, there's a... There's a Yet we're going to see these people have fallen asleep. End of verse 14, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now this term sleep is used as a figure in other New Testament places to describe the death of, of and the physical state of believers. It's a euphemism. You see, it points to the reality when a believer's body goes in the grave, it's not going to be forever. It's going to be raised. Just like when you go to sleep, you eventually wake up. You see? It's being used as a term to describe that. We even see that in the Lord Jesus, what he shares with uh, Martha concerning Lazarus. 
Turn to uh, John chapter 11. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And we'll start at verse 11. This he said, and after he said to them, our, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. <laughs> well, if you just read that by itself, you think, oh, Lazarus took a nap, right? Well, that's not the case. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Hey, he's going to be fine. He's going to wake up, right? Uh, now Jesus had spoken of his what? His death. His death. Um, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus therefore said plainly to them, Lazarus is dead. You see, even Jesus used this euphemism that applies to believers alone that death is somewhat like sleep, okay? In that, there will be an awakening. The body will wake up, in a sense, in resurrection. Now, with that in mind, there are bad guys, there are cults who take this and twist this and make it a, a evil doctrine, such as the Jehovah's Witness and the Seventh-day Adventist who talk about soul sleep. And they use that associated with annihilism to get rid of the consequences of judgment and eternal separation from God. It is an evil doctrine that they have brought about because of this passage and other passages that speak of sleep. They say the soul is at sleep, just like you would go to sleep. Well, we're going to see that's not the case. That's not the case. We're going to see that they twist what God says is in, uh, in, in context to eliminate God's judgment, which is very evil. Because when you eliminate God's judgment, then you eliminate the need for a Savior, by the way. But what does the Scriptures have to say about death? What does the Scriptures have to say about this? Because our passage will prove that they are completely errant and heretical in those uh, doctrines. So what does it say? Well, we know from Scripture that when a person dies... Their spirit leaves their body. Death means separation, okay? It's the separation of the spirit from the body. Psalm 146, verse 4, His spirit departs and he returns to the earth. Okay? The Lord Jesus made this clear, and we have a great example of this when he shared about the rich man and Lazarus. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Here we have a great uh, we, we gain great insight into what happens after death. You know, we're curious people. You know, we look on TV and we see people die. We want to know the circumstances. We see what happened. We, we're curious about death. Man is curious about death. But God reveals truly what happens. We have the truth. We see the curtain pulled back and God shows us what happens when one passes from life uh, to death, as we'll say. Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 19. Now there was a certain rich man. Notice he's not named, by the way. There's no relationship with the Lord, by the way. That's a little clue there. There's a lot of little clues in this true story, I believe. I believe it's a true story. He says here, a certain rich man who had, he had richly, richly dressed, some say it's a parable, I believe it's the truth, okay? He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living splendor every day. Hey, rich man living it up, right? Every day living it up, having a great life, I guess. And here, a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gates, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. So this guy was in bad shape, okay? The implications we'll see is that he knew the Lord. He's a true believer, as we're going to say. 
And so then, now it came about that the poor man died. Okay, very clear. And he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's a figurative sense for, for where God is, right? Okay, and the rich man also died and was buried. Okay, that's the body, right? Died, put him in the ground. They had the funeral, right? And notice this, verse 23, in Hades... He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. We're going to read farther in this, so keep your finger there. But the reality is Lazarus, a believer in this context, was immediately brought into the presence of God. And he was, as we'll see, being comforted. Being comforted. While he went in the grave, Lazarus went with the Lord. The rich man, an unbeliever, his body went in the grave, and his soul went immediately to Hades. That is the place for those who have not repented. It is a temporal place of torment until the final judgment where those in Hades will be reunited with their bodies and thrown in the lake of fire after judgment. And notice, he was conscious. We're going to see that. Look at this. There's no soul sleep here. There's no soul sleep. Uh, verse 24. And he cried out, this is the rich man, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now his body's in the grave, but his soul is there, right? You know, you see, you hear people where they got an arm chopped off and it feels like they got an arm there still. Well, this is a, this person's in his soul there, right? And he is, his body's in the grave, and he is in agony, in torment. The reality is, you can live your life, you can gain the whole world, but uh, if you uh, lose your soul, you lose everything. Uh, when someone dies and doesn't know Christ, they go into Hades. They go into eternal torment. They, that begins it. It begins it before judgment. Notice what he says here. But Abraham said, child, remember during your life you received the good things and likewise Lazarus bad, but now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and those who wish to cross over from there to us. None may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers uh, that they may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. That's the word of God. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. There's the issue, repentance, by the way. Lazarus uh, was being comforted. This rich man knew that it was repentance. Go warn them of this place of torment. And the Lord, through this, and this figuratively, Father Aaron said, hey, they've got Moses and the prophets. They've got the word of God. they got the word of God. But he said to them, if they will not listen to Moses nor the, and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So then, if you die today without Christ, your soul will leave your body. Your body will be dealt with however your family deals with it. And your soul will go immediately into torment, and you will be conscious. And I believe if this happens today, you might even remember this warning. I pray that's not you. I pray that it's not you. 
But for the believer, as we see in Lazarus's case, he's an Old Testament believer, he immediately goes in the presence of the Lord and is being comforted. His soul goes to be with the Lord. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Truly today you will enter soul sleep. He didn't say that at all. That's not true. That's false. Truly today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Today. The reality is, Scripture makes it clear, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Let's look at this. Actually, let's go to Philippians 1 first. Philippians 1, verse 21. Paul is saying, hey, you know, I'm suffering for Christ. I'm I'm in chains, I'm in prison, but hey, it's all for Christ. It's all for your sake. And so he explains here. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 22, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and what? Be with Christ. We have his spirit in us right now, but he is presently at the right hand of the Father the person of Jesus Christ, God who took on human flesh, the God-man forever, right? He is presently at the right hand of the Father. And so Paul understood that when he died, to live as Christ, to die is gain, that he would be in the presence of Christ. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 5, he says here, uh, always verse 6, Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage. And I say, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. You hear that wonderful, wonderful. Um, just say. He says here, prefer rather to be absent from the body to be at, uh, to be at home with the Lord. We know that when we die... Our bodies go in the grave and our souls go to be with the Lord. Little side note there. So back to our passage. So when a believer dies, the spiritual reality is his soul, that's the person, that's the inner man, that's the real person, goes to be with the Lord and is conscious. And the body is dead, the body goes in the grave. Now, for believers, we'll see in a few moments that the body will be resurrected. That's why we have this euphemism of sleep. It's going to wake up in a sense, in that sense. And the soul will be reunited with the glorified body. So with the spirit gone for believers, death is nothing more than a period of inactivity for the body while the soul or one's spirit is conscious with the Lord. That's what happens, okay? Think about it. When your loved one goes to sleep, you don't call 911. Right? We know for believers that when we die, we're with the Lord, right? With the Lord. Now, doesn't mean we don't grieve. The Lord Jesus wept over Lazarus, whom he knew he would raise. Death is a horrible thing, but he has conquered death and he knew he would raise him and we will be raised also. There's still a little grieving, but it's not like those who have no hope. So back to our passage, Paul says, he, he greatly desired them not to be ignorant concerning what happens to believers who have died. He says, but I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Um, 
So why does he share this? Look at, here's the purpose. That you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. There's the key. Here's the issue confronting the Thessalonians. They were waiting for Jesus Christ to come. They believed that he would come at any moment, as he could. And they had loved ones who had passed away within that year of faith. And it's kind of, they're, they're concerned. They're grieving as if they missed it. They missed it. But I do think this is kind of amazing here. Um, these were pagans before, just a year ago, and they got saved. And they're waiting for Jesus. They just needed more information, didn't they? they needed more truth. So they were distraught. They were grieving like those who didn't know the Lord. And so because of that ignorance, uh, they were grieving like the rest who have no hope. You see, biblical ignorance will cause you to be like the world. If you have biblical ignorance or you're not believing what God has said, you're going to be just like that depressed lady on the commercials looking for more drugs, right? You know, you have no hope, right? But the reality is, when God's truth is working in our hearts, yes, we may grieve, but there is comfort and there is even joy. Okay, you see, non-believers are never going to see their loved ones again. They're going to be separated from God in black darkness and eternal torment. Now, they might not know these truths, they don't believe these truths, but, you know, when a non-believer dies, they kind of know they're never going to see him. They kind of have that sense. They grieve with no hope. They have no real hope that they will ever, ever see that person again. When I was pastoring the first church I ever went to, a lady came to me and asked if I would do a funeral for her 16-year-old son. Uh, he's a non-believer and blew his brains out. And I told her that there's no way I could share that he was with the Lord because he wasn't. And I said, I could share, you know, the value of every human being and secondly, the good news of those who do believe in Jesus Christ. And she said, yes, do it. Um, but the reality is there's no hope. The only hope we have is in Jesus and that's before you die. It's before you die. So then Paul is saying, hey, you know, he's not saying hey, but he's saying, it's my desire, not my desire that you are ignorant about believers who've died. Don't, so that you won't grieve like those who have no hope. So again, we need to recognize that biblical ignorance has ramifications. There's ramifications for us. We are not to live in worldly hopelessness, despair, and depression. The Lord will get us out of that. If we renew our minds, if we trust him, if we focus on him, he will help us see this life rightly and the next life rightly. But if we look at it from the perspective of a non-believer, we're going to be hopeless. Okay, so with that in mind, if that's to you, confess your focus on the other things. Confess not focusing on what God has revealed and go to his word and allow him, as we'll see, to encourage you and bring more hope to genuine hope. Okay, so now at this point, Paul brings these hopeless believers to the specific biblical truth they need. And just a second. So Paul at this point now begins to bring these hopeless believers to a specific point of biblical truth they need. Notice verse 14, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with, uh, with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is great. 
He's going to explain. He uses the word for, expanding on what he has just said. For if we believe, and this is the key, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so. This is the key. The term if here is in a Greek first class condition. What does that mean? It means it's assumed to be true. If we believe, and we do, Thessalonians, uh, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Hey, you're, those relatives who fell asleep in Christ, they're coming back with Jesus. If we believe he died and rose from the dead. That's so important. You see, the truth of Jesus' death for our sins and his subsequent resurrection, conquering death, uh, if we believe that, then uh, our, our loved ones in Christ who died in him will come back with him. Wow, that's tremendous. Tremendous. You see, everything hinges on what Christ has done. Everything hinges on what Christ has done. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Everything hinges on what Christ has done. Our future, re- future hope does not rest on our feelings. It doesn't rest on our emotions. It does not rest on our experiences. It rests on Christ and the firm foundation of his completed redemptive work. Our hope is tied up in Christ. This is the basis for eternal hope. It is Christ. He is our living hope. He is in us, the hope of glory. So then Paul says, for if we believe Jesus died and rose again, that's the qualification, even so God will bring with him, that's Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In a moment, we're going to see that when Jesus comes and brings those who have died in him, the implication is they have been with him the whole time. They were with him the whole time since they died. And now they're coming with him when he comes for us. It's a great thing. Thus, the great implication is that we will be reunited. We will be reunited. Okay? Remember, these Thessalonians uh, believed Jesus was coming back. They were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter 1, verse 10. And this Jesus is going to bring, that he's, they're waiting for, is going to bring with him those who died in him. So he says, middle of verse 14, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Remember, the term fall asleep means they passed away. But they're believers. They're in Jesus. They're in Christ. You see, when you believe in Jesus Christ, he comes in you and you are in him. You have a relationship with him. And when you die, you are going to be absent from the body with him. And when he comes, you're going to come with him. You see? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. So he says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The implication is he's coming, okay? We're going to look at that. Now, with that in mind, uh, we see uh, this refers to, middle of verse 15, the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. Now, that term could address two specific things. So we need to address what this term means. And the content of verses 14 to 17 will show really what it means. The context. The Apostle Paul has already mentioned his coming a couple times. It's coming a couple of times. Second, First Thessalonians 2.19, For who is our joy and crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? First Thessalonians 3.10, Now may the God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct your way to you. Direct our way to you. 
And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. Really good. And for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he might establish your hearts unblameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It's already mentioned this coming already. He's talked about it. Talked about it. Now, what is the coming of the Lord? There are two specific possibilities. First of all, it could refer to the second coming of Christ, or it could rightly refer, as we will see, to the rapture of the church. That's what we call it. Now, I don't have time to go through the order of events of what's going to happen, but right now we are living at a time in which Jesus could come at any moment. And when he comes, he will take us. We will see his church out before wrath. And then there will be a seven-year tribulation, that 70th week of Daniel, in which God turns his plan back to the Jews, and he punishes and he brings judgment, the day of the Lord, upon the earth. And in that, he purges out uh, the Israelites so that they eventually are saved at the end. He comes, he places his feet on the Mount of Olives, he fights the battle, takes care of his enemies, feet on the Mount of Olives, and then he reigns on this earth for a thousand years. That's kind of an overview, okay? And so here, we are waiting for this coming of Christ, the first coming in a sense, not his first coming, but this coming for us, as we'll say. So with this in mind, uh, what is it? Well, I'm, I'm confident that it is not speaking of, quote, the second coming of Christ. A coming, Matthew 24, in which every eye will see, in which he will come in glory, he will plant his feet on the Mount of Oz, he will slay his enemies, he will save all Israel at that time, and he will establish his millennial kingdom. That is his second coming. Okay? And I believe the evidence in our passage will make it abundantly clear it's not speaking of that, but of what we call the rapture of the church. Now there are those that say, well, no, it says parousia. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, the word parousia is a, is a technical term for coming. It actually means coming. Paul even used it saying, oh, I, I plan on coming. I plan on parousia. Right? It, it's just a term for coming. But people have made it a technical term for the second coming. So they say, oh, the word is parousia, so it must mean the second coming. Well, that's just bad interpretation, by the way, because it literally means coming or being present in coming, in a sense. And it could speak of anything. Context determines the meaning of words. It just because that word is there doesn't mean it speaks of his second coming. It speaks of coming. You see, this word speaks of an action, not an event. The context shows the event. The word speaks of an action, of an action. Okay. So all that said, I believe as we look at this passage, we're going to see this is his coming for the church. This is not the second coming. I believe this passage will make it abundantly clear. And there are other passages that reveal this same truth. In a moment, we're going to see that our passage points to an event where Jesus does not come to earth and set his feet on the ground. Rather, he comes and grabs his believers up to be with him in the air. We're going to see that. It's quite different. And it is very consistent with the passage that I read earlier, but let's look at it again in John 14. It's very clear that there's going to be a coming for believers that doesn't, doesn't end at earth. It ends in heaven. Take a look at this. John 14. And don't get confused. Just uh, hold on there. 
It's, it's really simple once we get to it. John 14. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed. He is trying to comfort uh, those. He's telling them he's got to leave, but he's not going to leave them orphans. Uh, he's he's going to leave his spirit. He's going to give him another comforter, one such as himself. He says in John 14.1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. Now, where is his Father's house? Is that in uh, Portland? Is that in uh, Spartanburg? No, it's not. It's in heaven. It's not on this earth, right? In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told I would have told you, for I go, he was leaving, right? He was going to die on the cross, rise from the dead, and then go to his father, right? He says, for I go to prepare a place for you. That's quite an amazing statement. That's in heaven, by the way. That's not here. Notice what he says. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's going to come again, take you to the place he's prepared in heaven. That's not the second coming. That is what we call the rapture of the church. That's what we call the rapture of the church. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So then, the second coming of Christ is when he comes to earth in judgment, and through that judgment purges and saves Israel, comes in judgment, and that's at the end of the tribulation, but here, this is before the tribulation. This is at the end of what we would call the church age, the age that we are in right now. So then, Scripture also lays forth a paradigm that reveals before judgment, God takes his people out. Think about Enoch. He walked with God. God took him before the flood judgment. Think about what the Lord Jesus, the point he made in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, about Lot and Noah being delivered before judgment. Same thing with us, folks, being delivered. Even the Thessalonians were told uh, that God has not destined them for wrath, but salvation. Chapter 5, verse 9. We know that they were waiting for Jesus, who delivers them from the wrath to come. Chapter 1, verse 10. Now, over and over, these passages reveal that what we're going to see is what we call the rapture. But the passage itself is the most evidence there is. It's the most compelling evidence. That's, that's what it is. Take a look at it. The text itself, there is no room for this being the second coming. There's no room at all. Anyone who says it is, is twisting the word of God, is false in their teaching in this area. It's false. It's wrong. And it's destructive. It's destructive. Okay? There's no room for saying this is the second coming. Because that's not what God says. And you better be careful when you say something is not what it really is. If you take God's word and you say it's something else, you better be careful. You better be careful. Okay, so here, he says here, he's going to explain, so that they wouldn't be ignorant, grieve like non-believers about their brothers and sisters in Christ who died. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the qualification, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And then notice what he says. He's going to talk about his return and resurrection in our heavenly reunion. Verse 15, 4. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. Hey, this is God's word. This is absolutely certain. Those who say this isn't the case, they are absolutely contradicting God's word. It's the word of the Lord. And on a side note, don't get your end time stuff from someone who has a newspaper in one hand, a Bible in the other. Don't look for tantalizing fulfillments by the TBN hucksters or whoever they might be. Don't do that. Go to the word of God. 
God's Word tells us what is going to happen. It tells us what's going to happen. So by the Word of the Lord, notice what's going to happen. It says, For the Word of the Lord, uh, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen, fallen asleep. This is now the order of what happens. Thessalonians, don't worry. Your loved ones who fell asleep, they died. They're with the Lord. Put their bodies in the grave. And he says here, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede them. They're going to be first. They're going to be first. This phrase is interesting. Who are alive and remain is an interesting phrase, by the way. Until the coming of the Lord. Every believer who is alive at the time Jesus comes, that's who this is talking about. You see, if the Lord was to come today, those who are alive and remain, that's us. If we died, and it's the next generation of believers, those will be the ones who are alive and remain. Okay? That's what it's talking about. And what's really interesting here is this word, remain, literally translated as left behind. Kind of interesting. You have all the shows and prophecy movies that talk about the ones who are going into the tribulation being left behind. But Paul says, we were left behind when Jesus went to heaven. But he's coming back for us. You see? He's coming back for us. Tremendous. Tremendous. He says, literally, those uh, who are alive and were left behind until the coming of the Lord. Quite interesting. Quite interesting. So the emphasis here is that every true believer on earth uh, has been left behind right now. We're not with Jesus personally. We will be. We will be. He's coming back. So those who are alive and remain or left behind until Jesus comes, we have those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And he says, shall not proceed those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That's the order. Those who die, they're going to be dealt with first when he comes. Then those who are alive when he comes will be second. Okay, that's the order. And notice he explains more details. Verse 16, for the Lord himself, very emphatic, emphatic, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Hey, that's where he was, to preparing a place for us, wasn't it? And with a shout, three things. The voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Now there is great grammatical emphasis again on the Lord himself. He is descending from heaven. This is the event. He's descending from heaven. Now where does he descend to? We'll see in Scripture, he ascends to the clouds in the air. He doesn't come all the way down, but he comes down and then takes us up. Right? Look at the middle of verse 17. We see the clouds in the air. Then we who are alive and remain, we caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord where? In the air, not on the ground. This is not his second coming. Thus we shall always be at the Lord. So then, the coming of the Lord Jesus for his people, his believers before judgment, is not the same as his second coming in judgment. Jesus came to earth for the benefit of the entire earth to bring salvation, his first coming. He is coming in his second coming to bring judgment to the entire earth, those who have rejected him. It's not the same coming as seen in Zechariah 14, Matthew 24, Revelation 19. That's where he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives and executes judgment and delivers Israel. Here, he is coming as far as the clouds, and then he gathers his own to himself, as we'll see. So what else does it say about his descent? Three things. With a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. This term with, uh, it's a preposition in Greek, and with the dative, what's that mean? It means in or within this sphere. 
within the sphere of a shout, within the sphere of the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. So the term shout literally means the shout of a command. Kind of interesting. It was used to describe the cry of a ship's master to its rowers. Row, 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 right? It was used of a military officer to his soldiers. Turn left, turn right, grab your guns, whatever it is, right? It was of a hunter with his hounds or a charioteer charioteer of his horses. It's the sound of a command, a shout. And then there's the voice of the archangel. Now, we don't know if it's, the, if it's the actual voice of the archangel, Michael, or voice resembling that, but it says the voice of the archangel. That's what it says. And then it says, in the sphere of the trumpet of God, it's a loud trumpet blast, and it's God's trumpet blast. So what's the point? This is a very significant event. Very significant. Jesus is leaving heaven. He's prepared a place for his children. He's leaving heaven to come and resurrect the dead to join them with their spirits and bring home those who are alive and remain and glorify them. This is a pretty significant time. And I believe this shout most likely has to do with the command for bodies to rise up from the grave. That's quite possibly. Remember with Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. You know, I think it's possible. And then look at this. It says, the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You say, wait a second, you told me earlier the dead were already with Jesus. Uh, that's true, to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Talk about their bodies. You see, when you die, your body goes in the grave, if you know Jesus. The non-believer goes there too. If you don't know Jesus, your soul goes to Hades and torment. If you know Jesus, it's present with the Lord. And so when he comes back for us, he brings everyone who has fallen asleep in Jesus. Every believer, their souls are with him. But the first thing that happens is their bodies are raised and they're put together with the souls. They're glorified. The first thing. First thing. So he says here, it'll be compassed in the shouted command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the priority. So if you are anywhere near where a body might be or pieces of it or whatever, it's going to be risen first, right? And then notice what it says here. It says, uh, now, if we die before Christ comes, you and I, then we're going to be in this group. We're going to be with him, and our bodies are going to be raised. We're with him and raised. The Lord God will finish the job. We will not remain unclothed, uh, just spirits with the Lord. We will be resurrected. This this mortality must put on immortality. Right? Glorified bodies never to sin again. So here's the scenario. For those who have passed away, when Jesus descends, he will bring with them the spirits of those who have died in Jesus. And the bodies of those spirits will raise first. They will meet their spirits. They will be changed, glorified bodies for eternity, immortal. But what about us? If we're there, if he comes today? Look at verse 17. But we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. This is quite amazing. In the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. This is this is wonderful. So those who are alive and remain are obviously believers who haven't died yet. That's us right now. We are alive. We've been left behind till Jesus comes, right? We're here on this earth. We don't want to be here. We want to be with Jesus. But he's working through us. He's doing his work, right? And it says here, 
that they will be uh, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Tremendous, tremendous. Now this term caught up comes from the Greek word harpazo. It's an interesting word. It means to snatch up, to seize, to forcefully grab, to rapture, to forcibly seize. Jesus used it in the parable of the sower, spoke of the evil one, snatching the word out of the hearts of those who don't believe, grabbing it out forcefully. He also used it literally that no one can snatch us, grab us out of the Father's hands. Paul spoke of it in 2 Corinthians 12, being caught up, snatched up to the third heaven. Jude uses it to speak of snatching people out of the fire. Out of the fire. Jude, uh, I think it's 24, or 23. And now we get our English word rapture from the Latin translation of this word harpazo. That's where this term rapture comes from. Someone says rapture. Now the people who have it all wrong, they go, well, rapture is not in the Bible. You know, well, then I'll call it something else. I will call it the harpazo, or I'll call it the forcibly grabbing, or God's grab, okay? But it's God grabbing us. That's what it means. That's what it means. God's grab of us, right? Okay. Now, on a side note, uh, we're going to fly a little bit. If you don't like flying, get ready, right? <laughs> we're going to be doing a lot of flying, actually, okay? And you'll like it. I guarantee it. Okay, so here we have this. These, we're snatched up to be with him in the clouds. I mean, notice what he says here. And thus, to meet the Lord in the air together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, verse 17, and thus we shall always be at the Lord, never separated again from the, his presence. We have him in us now, but personally, God who took in human flesh forever with us will caught up, which implies after the bodies come out of the grave, then we go, right? Second, right? And then there's something else. It implies we're going to be glorified. We're going to be changed. This is where we get glorified in this moment. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When you know the truth, it sure is encouraging. When you think about it, 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, Paul says. That so you, that's what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you shall not... You do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. Verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 15. But there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another flesh of another fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, uh, for stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, that means it rots and dies. It is raised imperishable body. Uh, it is sown in dishonor, that's the sin-cursed uh, bodies we have. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Now, a lot of, not there. Don't get caught up on it. But a lot of good truth. You can go back to it later. 
So also as it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. We're going to have spiritual bodies for eternity that are without sin, glorified, as we're going to say. And so he says here, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. I just read that. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthly, the second man is from heaven. And is, as is, excuse me, as is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Okay, wow. And then notice what he says here. Notice what he says here in verse 40, 50. Now I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, right? But we shall all be changed. There you go. In the moment of the twinkling of an eye and the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That's what our passage is talking about. For the perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on the immortality. But when the perishable have put on the imperishable, and the mortal have put on the immortality, then will come the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is your sting? Uh, uh, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Long passage, but it explains what happens. One other passage. I'll read this for you. Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with his body, with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. One last passage. Turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. We're getting there in our study also. His coming for us ought to motivate us to, 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 to not sin. First John 2.28, And now little children, abide in him. It means rest in him, trust in him, his word in us, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. He's going to come. I don't want to be a sinner when he comes. We are going to sin. We do sin. We confess our sin quickly. We're walking with the Lord, Right? says here, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet appeared what we shall be. That's being glorified, right? This, this event we're talking about. We know that when he appears, there you go, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So either we will be resurrected and glorified, or we will be changed alive, right? <laughs> and changed and glorified, right? There's going to be a generation that is here when he comes. Maybe that's us. Come, Lord Jesus. 
and we will be be raised and meet him in the air. We will be with Jesus forever. And our loved ones, yes, it's hard. You miss your loved ones. It's only a time. You're going to see them. You're going to see them. Then we who are alive and ranged be caught up together with them <coughs> in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Again, if you don't like flying, I know there's a time when you will. We are going to be flying, folks. we got a lot of flying in our future. Praise the Lord. What a mind-blowing event. Call it the rapture, call it the harpazo, call it the grab, call it whatever you want. It's awesome. We're going to be reunited with all our saved loved ones who died. And more importantly, we're going to meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever. It's going to happen. Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. We will never be separated from his presence again, ever. We'll be with him forever. Our faith will become sight. The day of sin and darkness and temptation will be over. Death will be done. Yes, we grieve when our loved ones pass away. If they're in Christ, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We know we will see them again. We know we will see them again. Okay, so what are the applications for us? Obviously, this should motivate us to holiness. We wouldn't be ashamed when he comes. That we would, we're going to see him like he is and be changed. Therefore, we should uh, desire to be pure. We should also remember, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, our toil is not in vain. It's not in vain what you're doing right now. You're going to be glorified. God's going to bring about even those rewards, as we say. Always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast and movable, right? Stand firm. Don't flip all over the place with uh, emotions and stuff. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. Knowing your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Don't get discouraged. Don't get depressed if you do. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Confess your lack of focus. Trust him. Yes, you may may be sorrowful. We know that. But you can be joyful too. Be strong. Keep working for the Lord. We've been left up behind, but not for long. But not for long. Okay, and then the obvious application here is from our passage, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Speak the word of God and allow God to comfort one another, right? It's difficult when a loved one passes away. We love them. We miss them. If they're in Christ, it's hard. We miss them. But comfort one another. You're going to see them again. It's going to be a great reunion in the sky. And be with them forever with the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what we've seen. Thank you so much for this truth. Uh, we who've been left behind just for our time, very short time, uh, we, we know that you are coming for us. Your son is coming. He's going to come take us home. We look forward to that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, in the meantime, may we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, knowing our toil is not in vain in you. Thank you, Lord God, for your son Jesus who saved us and will deliver us from the wrath to come. 
We praise you for him in his precious name. Amen.